welcome to Positive Talk with Kevin McDonald. Hey, that's me. Hi, and welcome to Positive Talk. Our show features the best positive stories and people from around the globe as we endeavor to answer the universal question of why am I here and what is my purpose? Understanding that can change everything and knowing your greatness is fundamental to living your best life. So join us right now as together we work to create the adventure of our lifetime. And welcome to the show, everybody. I hope everybody is well today. I'm excited with our our guests. We are are of a like generation. And so we've got a lot of shared experiences of of what's happened in the last, you know, I don't know, 60 years. Um, And her name is uh, her name is Donna Conrad. She's an author. She's got a brand new book series that's coming out in April. So when you listen to this, we're going to talk about that quite a little bit. And I want you to then go ahead and pre-order that book so that when it comes out in April, she can be on the best, uh, the, the um, bestseller list and, and can really get it off the ground. (laughs) Donna, welcome. How are you? I am doing well. Thank you. And thank you for having me on the show. Hey, what'd you think of my opening? I like it. it it's it's the uh, maxims I live by. Keep it positive. Never give up. Just keep going. Make the world a better place. That's the that's the whole idea. And and know that you are great in and of yourself. Yes. And you don't have to learn how to do that. You already are. But you have to accept that you're great. And that's that's the biggest problem that a lot of people have. And once you do that, then you can go on the grand adventure that is life, which you are in the middle of a grand adventure. You're doing a bunch of positive uh, podcasts and you're and you're getting the word about your book out there. And and you've got your first book that that I want to talk about a little bit because it goes all the way back to the fabulous 60s. And uh, and tell us a little bit about, first of all, about you, how you became a Mm -hmm. writer what decided you to do that and all of your your bio? <clears throat> all of my bio. Oh, my goodness. It reads, uh, truth is stranger than fiction. All it the things I've is. been and done. <laughs> things that I've been and done in my life. Um, I think I've always wanted to be a writer. I think you hear that with, with especially novelists, that it's something, um, storytelling. My Celtic or Irish grandpa was a fantastic storyteller. And I loved how he was able to create create worlds and moods and and just everything transports you to another another place, another time. And I think I learned very early uh, that this is a tremendous gift that we offer to people to allow them to experience something other than themselves. There's nothing better than to have a fine story by somebody that's got got the, the chops for it, if you know what I mean. Oh, he certainly did. He, he was great. He was a big red Irishman. <laughs> <clears throat> he was, and my grandmother was a, a tiny little black Irish, you know, with the pale skin and the deep blue eyes and the black hair. And they just look like Mutton Jeff for anybody who knows that. <laughs> <laughs> analogy you, you gotta so, go back in time for that one yes quite a bit even past our time yeah 
Yeah, that's from the 40s and 50s, I think. Maybe even the 30s. I think so. I think so. Yeah. So, yeah, so starting with that, then just wanting to do, I was a high school English teacher, but I think the person who gave me my true love of writing was a high school English teacher. Who, whoever has read House of the Moon or when you do, I was a, a freak in the 60s, which means I did every drug known to woman at that time and was really on a downhill spiral. And I got bumped up from one English teacher, bumped me up from dumbbell English is what we used to call it, to college prep. And David Sunstrand was the, the teacher and he saw something in me and took an interest in me and really um, gave me what you're saying to recognize my own genius, my own um, abilities. And that's because he recognized them. And then he gave me the courage to face that. And from that time on, I wanted to be a writer. I became a high school English teacher and did lots of other things and uh, was a journalist for 18 years. So it's you know, a journey. I, it is. It's a journey and it's a grand adventure. You know, I was uh, talking with somebody just the other day and you're the second person that in, in like three days that has said, you know, um, this teacher that I had really made a difference in my life. So if you're a teacher out there or you're a teacher wannabe out there, I highly encourage you to follow through with that because not only can you make, it's not a great living, but it's a decent living but you will have the opportunity to impact young people in such a positive way. And um, I'm sure that your, te your teacher, is he still with us? Do you have any idea? Uh, he is as of a year ago. I actually got to see him after 45 years. When my book came out, some people said, hey, you're in this book. And uh, he got in touch with me and we met at a writer's conference where I was teaching. And it was like no time had passed. But it was such a beautiful meeting because he started telling me what he saw in me and his perceptions of me when I was 17 years old, when I hated everybody. <laughs> you know, <laughs> the world could just go away. It was horrible. And he, he was, it, he saw it in me and he's seen it in so many other people. So two teachers out there, you know, just bless you. You have an impact that sometimes you may never know. But it's there. Oftentimes, Truly is. Yep, oftentimes you you may never have a student come back, but I'm willing I'm willing to bet that you have. That you've had students come back and say, Boy, Miss Conrad, you really made a difference in my life. Some I do have that with people that have read my books or taken my workshops at writers' conferences. And I try to stay in touch with everyone. And I, I'm kind of an open book. After you read House of the Moon, there's not too much else to hide about my life. And, uh, and to just talk with people and to know that, that you impact people, that you give. And to me, the most beneficial thing you can do for somebody is to see that genius, that creative spark that's within them and encourage that. I don't really think you can teach... Um, teach that much other than something that I've said, sorry, I'm, I'm rambling here, but something that I said oh, years ago and it's on my computer is belief in oneself is something fate finds almost irresistible. That is and so I, tried to, I try to pass that on to people. Just believe, don't give up. 
keep going. Know that you are great and your mm -hmm. greatness will come out when you know that that is the case. Unbelievable things can happen for you. Absolutely. But it's unfortunate that most of us go, no, I'm not that good. I'm not great. I'm, I'm struggling. I've got, you know, and until you make that fundamental switch, and which you did at one point and, and started writing and because yes. it was because it you didn't write when you were real young. It took a little while. It took a while. And uh, just as an inspirational story, the first book I ever wrote is in the virtual file drawer. We'll probably never see the light of day. <laughs> but I wrote an entire book start to finish character development everything it's it's not very good but it led me down the path to knowing what it takes to finish a book and people yeah. say there's there are books inside of everyone well it has to come out and you have to try and if it turns out that it's not the book that you were meant to write you still wrote it and you move yeah. on you go to the next one so without having written that first uh paranormal urban fantasy I would not have written the memoir, uh, House of the Moon. And if I hadn't written the memoir, I would not have had the writing chops to tackle The Last Magdalene, which is historical fiction. So it's a building block. Keep going. Keep writing. And um, be honest with yourself about if, if what you're writing is moving the story forward and if it is developing the arc of your characters having your characters change for the better or for the worse oh yeah exactly. just you need change change happens whether you want it to or not actually i've learned <laughs> i've learned that when i turned 60. it's like yes <laughs> if i don't want to change i'm afraid there's only one way for that to happen and i don't want that yet I exactly a life of change is better than the alternative. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Now, I got to ask you, House of the Moon, where did that title come from? Uh, my mother in the, I was born in the 50s, and my mother way back then named me Donna, which means lady, and Diane for the moon. And she always, she felt even before I was born that I was going to be ruled by the moon. And yeah, sometimes lunacy goes into that, but more, more often than not, shining a light in the dark, changing, having um, progress every month from being very luminous to being very dark and all of that. And she gave me that name. And so this is House of the Moon because it was the house, the, the life I grew up in. Now, you grew up as I did in the 50s. I don't remember the 50s. My earliest memories were 1962. Well, I remember some things, but in media or national stuff, I remember like 1963. And, yeah, and, oh, we and, all. <laughs> when, when John Kennedy was killed. Uh, and everybody that I know of that was alive then knows exactly what they were doing. What were you doing? I was in my fifth grade English class, and we were reading A Wrinkle in Time. Oh, wow. <laughs> Not to be too specific, but, uh, and the, the, it, came, it came across the radio. They stopped the class, and we were, there was total silence and disbelief. 
something like this could not happen. And then we were all sit home, sit home and, um, and sit home for the rest of the week. Cause it was, it was traumatic. People that did not go through that don't get how dramatic it was, how traumatic it was. Cause I was mm-hmm. in second grade and mm-hmm. the principal walked in and whispered to the teacher and the teacher mm-hmm. said, boys and girls, um, the president has been hurt. And we're going to pray for him because I went to a Lutheran school. So, so we prayed for him and then the teacher came back or the principal came back a little while later and said that he passed, he passed away. And that was, that was maybe the earliest that I understood how national events could affect all of us because Mm -hmm. there, there were the travesty was I was seven and there were no cartoons on Saturday morning. Now, do you remember in those days, cartoons were only on Saturday morning? Saturday, they were on Saturday, and we got an extra out. We got an hour of TV. We were restricted to a half an hour, but on Saturday we could watch an hour. Yes, and I remember there being um, great big rollouts for the new season that would happen on a Saturday, and they announced all the new cartoons that were going to be out there it was a big deal now now it's not Mm -hmm. you have cartoons 24 7 now and that you had to wait until saturday morning you did you did and And you you had three television stations i'm sure (laughs) anybody watching has heard this before but you had three and that was it and tv went off at midnight yeah it was like you got the national anthem and then and the 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 screen the test pattern thing. The test pattern, yeah, that was it. So <laughs> and then it, it start up a six again. Yep. You know, so a different it, time. It was a different time, and you know, the interesting thing about that time was that there was a young, vibrant generation that yes. was coming up that wasn't going to be ruled by the man. That was going to be independent. <laughs> they were going to, um, they they. they we're going to make love and not war. And they, we, there was quite a bit of um, chemical usage uh, back then with, with uh, yep. what was his name? What was his name? Um, um, Timothy Larry or? That's, yeah. That, <laughs> you picked it right off the top of my head. <laughs> he, he's the one who created or promoted LSD. And, and then there was acid. There was uh, all, all kinds of, well, acid is LSD, but there was all kinds of, of different stuff and and apparently you were a couple years older than me so i was a little young to em- embark on the chemical uh experiences of the 60s but you were right in the wheelhouse i was to me i i was still young i was like 14 and the reason i was just brought into the fold was my sister was four years older than i ah, i yeah. was and my father, for everybody, was an undercover narcotics agent for the state of California. This, this is in your book. This is so cool. It's, it's so cool. And my sister's boyfriend dealt drugs to all the bands that came through Los Angeles. So it was a bit of a dichotomy right from the beginning. You know, I mean, now, here's dad. And uh, Did your dad yeah. know? Did your dad know? I, like I wonder. I, I think. Denial was a river in Egypt for him. I, 
Um, he never said anything. He must have known somehow. Uh, but when my sister had one joint, one marijuana cigarette on campus, she got expelled <gasps> from school. And he sent her to the Bay Area in 1965 because she had a drug problem. Hmm. Before he died, I said, do you see any irony in that? And he said, no. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, she came back and um, after like two years or something and uh, was heavily into drugs. Unfortunately, she stayed pretty heavily into drugs for most of her life. Whereas when I started college and by the time I was halfway through college, I had just given it up and said, okay, I don't want to do this anymore. I prefer to think, you know, on a, on a day-to-day uh, -day basis, let's just get back. But my life had normalized. My life as a teen was so unpredictable, so scattered and so, so much dichotomy between what my dad was saying, what was going on in the, in the world, um, that drugs normalized my day-to-day -day existence. And then once my outer existence started to normalize, I moved out on my own. I had a job. I was going to college. It was like, I, I don't need this anymore. Exactly. And you got to remember, most of the parents of us in the, in the 60s, that became of age i became of age in like in the early 70s but they were from the 40s they were born in the in the 30s or 40s and so, <laughs> 20s my parents and so th this this brand new culture that was out there and the flower power and and you know uh, all the, the the places that we were going and doing and the things they, that was way beyond them they had no idea uh and and of course mm -hmm. There was that that there was that film that was made about pot, the demon reefer movie. madness. That's it, reefer madness. <laughs> Smoke one pot cigarette, and you'll be hooked on mainlining heroin within a week. Yes, <laughs> the demon drug. And they, it, it is amazing the misinformation that we all got way back then. And uh, but to me, you know, they grew up. In a generation, they went through the Depression. They went through World War II. They were raised that you did whatever your elders said. You, you marched in step. You did what you were told. And you did not ever question an adult. Even when I grew up, I didn't even know my mother's first name till I was like 16. I would never think of calling a neighbor's friend by their first name. It was always Mrs. or Mr. something. Yep. And so for us as a generation to say, we don't have to live by your rules. We don't have to live by your command. And no, you can say we have to go in the draft and go to Vietnam. We're not going to do it. That was, it, it was revolutionary, but it was also rebellion on a scale that they could not comprehend. And it had never happened before in, in their lifetime. So they yeah. had no earthly idea. And then the music. The music changed so much with, you know, <laughs> in from 64 on, because prior to 64, if you go back and listen, you had people like Frankie Avalon and Annette Funicello and, 
and and those guys now there was elvis and there was some music but it wasn't really until 64 through 67 68 when the music scene really changed it did tremendously and they were expressing new values <clears throat> you know what crosby stills nash if you can't be with the one you love love the one you're with <laughs> yes indeed my, my you know friend parents my, yeah <laughs> you put that in my annual <laughs> exactly so you know let parents listen to that and they're like you're not going out of this house young lady <laughs> or like the one my um high school sweetheart used to always tell me you know you can't always get what you want, you want. <laughs> <laughs> but then i always shot back with but if you try sometimes you can get what you need, you need. <laughs> and we knew what we needed we needed freedom we needed to expand our minds from the closed um, boxes, even that schools were putting us in. And uh, we needed our freedom. And, and that's what we were fighting for. You know, it wasn't to take down, well, yeah, some people thought they wanted to take down the old establishment, but it was just, for me, it was just, let me, let me be who I want to be. I want to be an artist. I, I, I want to write. I want to express myself. And it was like, no, maybe you could be a secretary. Maybe you could be a teacher, maybe. But then you get married and you have babies and you live the life your husband wants you to live. And, and remember that from the generation before us, mm -hmm. moms very rarely worked. Uh, dad mm -hmm. would would work and he'd bring home the bacon and and mom might have a part-time job or something but she was unless she was there had been an accident and and she was a widow or or there had been a divorce which divorce was really negatively thought of back then a Absolutely. lot of people a lot of people, my including my parents if they they ended up being married for like 53 years and and probably had a great time about a third of that uh, other than yeah, that, exactly, was, but you, you didn't know. get divorced. And like my mom, people don't realize that in the '60s, it's one of the reasons I wrote this book was to set the record straight about the repression of of groups of people. Not only you know the African Americans and the Hispanics, women in general were repressed. And my mom couldn't even get a driver's license unless my dad approved it. And he didn't approve it until he wanted her to go to work. Isn't that, that you couldn't crazy. you you couldn't own a house, you couldn't get a credit card in your name, you couldn't do any of these things. It was very hard even for uh, a single woman with children to rent an apartment. They were suspect, and it was coming out of the the hippie movement and civil rights came the women's rights movement. And we're still fighting that. Women still aren't paid the same as men. But back then, I mean, I, w I was fired from a job because I had birth control pills. I was 18 years old. I had birth control pills, and they fell out of my purse. Somebody in the office saw it, told the boss, and I was fired because they don't. we don't employ women like you. No, girls like you, excuse me. Uh. Yeah. And what they don't, and 
it's so frustrating because there were a lot of people at that time that were on birth control because it regulated their system. And if they were having very difficult uh, um, cycles, that this could help them. And so that wasn't so painful. Mm -hmm. Exactly. But it didn't matter. That meant we were loose women and we were tempting men. Uh, You know, and uh, it, it was always the woman's fault. We won't even go there, but it's still happening today. You know, well, a sure woman is. is molested. A woman is accosted. She's assaulted. She's raped. It's always her fault somehow. You know, there's, still there's, today. There's some guy, and I, for, I forget who it is, but he was doing an interview. He has kind of an orange hue about him, and he said that uh, he, <laughs> he, could, he could – he could grab a woman by their her private parts, and that would be and okay, would... and nothing would happen to him. And that yep. that happened not in the sixties. <laughs> that happened, happened now. It happened in two thousand and sixteen or so, or right so around. So it, it's it's still prevalent, but I think that back in the sixties and the seventies, it was really brushed under the carpet. Was well, terribly. If if that if that interview had aired in the seventies, it wouldn't have even raised an eyebrow. Would have been yeah. okay. That's fine. Yeah. Now people can, and rightly so, be upset about it. That as that, well they should be. Yes. So they- I I think we made a lot of gains in that time about um, personal freedom. Yes. But you know what kills me is that there are still people that will say when they're when they hear that of that particular interview they'll say, "Well, you know, boys will be boys," and it's like, no, men don't talk like that. Men don't do that kind of thing. Men are respectful to women, and it just floors me that we think that we still give people a pass. And in those days, mm-hmm. it didn't. Even, the difference is, at least now it comes up. In the old days, it never would have even come up. That's what I'm saying. It wouldn't have even been so what? He said that? Big deal. But even even not that long ago, I think in this decade, uh, that college jock guy who raped the woman while she was asleep and uh, in the dorm, and the judge said, well, I'm not really going to sentence him to anything because it'll hurt his future careers. So that's fine. Uh, you know, so it's still happening today. It's, um, and it really is a shame. And, and but again, what we learned in the 60s, we can speak our mind and say that is wrong. Yes. Back in the 60s, you couldn't say it was wrong. Well, yes. And, and Gloria Steinem and, and others mm-hmm. of that day, you know, I, I distinctly remember the uh, bra burning ceremonies and the, and the things about how we- <laughs> how women should be treated equally. What do you mean equally? Well, you know, it, it wasn't in the it wasn't until what was it in the late seventies where they could actually get their own checking account and yes. and that, that buy a house, get a credit card, all that. It wasn't until like I think seventy eight, something like that. You know, if you if you were to take today's kids and put them back then, <laughs> they would be there would be a real big culture shock. Oh, tremendous, 
tremendous. And and that is, again, if anybody wants to know what it was like, one reviewer of House of the Moon said, it's like going to sleep and waking up in the trenches. Yeah. So while Jim Morrison, Jimi Hendrix, Joni Mitchell are all in the book because I knew them all because I got backstage because of the drunk connection. Um, that is the, the, the gloss over what was happening in, in the deep, in the culture itself. And I, I want, I would like for people to read that and say, this is what it was really like. And not only did I survive, but many, many, many people survived. And hopefully they're the ones that are still trying to change the world to be a better place for everyone, to have something that is egalitarian. And it's a never ending fight that you can't give up. Just don't do it. <laughs> That's right. And by the way, you're not allowed to make a reference like I met Jimi Hendrix and saying, and Joni Mitchell and some of the others without um, talking about that just a little bit. Did you have a favorite um, of one of those stars that actually Jimi was... Hendrix? Oh yeah. He was. And, and when you read the chapter with him, you'll see why, but he was the, the kindest, most gentle, caring person that I, I think in my life, I've met many kind, caring, gentle people, but he came into my life at a time when there wasn't much tenderness, there wasn't much caring. There was more about the drug, sex, and rock and roll than there was about the interpersonal connection. And so I would say of all of them, Joni Mitchell, though, was sang for our generation. Yeah, and was. for generations after us, she had an incredible gift of taking her experiences and making them relatable. Well, you know, Paul McCartney tells a story about Jimi Hendrix because Jimi, for a while, played in in, in London, and mm -hmm. uh, he was a, he was tr a tremendous guitar player. And Paul McCartney said that that uh, um, um, Sergeant Pepper came out on a Friday afternoon. Which they, a lot of the the albums came out on Fridays, so that they could have sales on Friday, Saturday, Sunday, in mm -hmm. perfect sense. And so uh, Paul McCartney was at a he went to see Jimi Hendrix on a Sunday night in a in a club, and Jimi played selections from uh, Sergeant Pepper uh, perfectly because uh, he was such a talented talented man. People find that hard to believe, but in my book, the boyfriend I had during the '60s. His younger, who was a classical pianist, his younger brother was like that. I remember when Paul McCartney's single album came out, mm -hmm. he listened to a song once and played it flawlessly on the piano. Isn't that amazing? It was, it was unbelievable. He listened to Funeral for a Friend. Oh, uh, yeah. Elton John's. Elton John. He listened to that like, one time through he listened to it a second time and he played it he nailed yeah. it and i'm just like how is this possible so there are musical geniuses out there that can do this and and i jimmy hendrix is definitely one <laughs> real quick story about funeral for a friend which by the way is on uh, uh, Gold, uh yellow brick road the yellow brick road mm -hmm. album yes it is song one side one it's i think that's a double album uh, but it's it's song one side one, and I was playing that, and my son, who was a teenager at the time, 
uh, and this goes back like 10 years. And uh, he was listening to things like, you know, the, the real hard um, stuff. The grunge. Sounds, the grunge. <laughs> Even after the grunge, it was this, this kind of throaty kind of nondescript, awful sound that came out of these people's mouths. Ah, you sound like my dad about the Rolling Stones. <laughs> exactly. And, and so I was playing Funeral for a Friend. And it's one of my favorite songs of all time. And he comes into the room and said, what in the hell are you playing? That's terrible. So it's just generational. But what do you do? Oh, no accounting for taste. I know. <laughs> and to this day, he still thinks that the music I listen to is is crazy. But on the, my older son, he loved the Beatles. And uh, a lot of people still do 60 years later. But I do. Like I, li yeah. I listen to them. I still listen to Joni Mitchell, but I listen to a lot of the um, folk heroes. You know, Phil Oaks, uh, yeah. Jeff Buckley, um, Donovan, which we talked about pre. Yep. Yep. <laughs> Pre-show, Donovan. All they still their message still rings true to me. You know, one of the things that I want to do with my show is to play some of the music from that era that mm. really had an impact in in our lives like there was a song and i don't know if you know this it was called one tin soldier by by coven oh absolutely you know that was written oh absolutely and it was in the movie alice's restaurant it was also in the movie billy jack and oh, billy it, jack it was billy jack it was billy jack sorry my mistake oh that song is so powerful still it, is and and the premise of the song for those of you that have never heard it go look it up yeah, and go and, listen to it <laughs> yeah one tin soldier and it's it's about and see that really formed my perception of the world and what was right and what was wrong and that the people of the valley were jealous of the people on the mountain and they thought that the the, the, the people on the mountain had this secret treasure that and they wanted it for their very own. So they got their army together and they go up onto the mountain and they kill all the mountain people. And then they're standing there looking at the treasure and they're about to open it and they're saying, what a wonderful thing we've done. We're now going to be rich. They opened it up and it said, peace on earth. And that was, and this was during the Vietnam era. And this is when we were, and, and that really did shape my opinion of what life would be better if we could all have peace on earth and that and that that the people that profess peace on earth were ultimately killed by the people who are less than and so that 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 was really powerful mm -hmm. for me it was a very powerful song very powerful and um and donovan back to him he had so many just subtle beautiful protest songs that he yes. wrote and uh, <laughs> yeah one, one more quick story i gotta tell you uh in 2003 we went to war in iraq and so i bought a 1960s protest cd protest song cd because in those days i would go out to commercial with a song come back to commercial with another piece of a song outros and 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 stuff 
and I picked those like like Ed, Edwin um, I forget what his last name was the the guy who did war uh. yeah <laughs> you get you forget more of that but I I did I did a bunch of them and I started getting letters I got hate letters for 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 doing protests you're, you're un-American you're uh, not yeah. patriotic yeah yeah it, it was crazy so me being the brave soul that I am pulled them and didn't play them anymore. <laughs> well, we do what we can when we can. And Maya Angelou said something, I think I'm paraphrasing. Do the best that you can. And when you know better, do better. Ooh, that's a t-shirt. We need to put that on. Yeah, I, I, th I think that, I think that's the whole quote. Um, but she, she is another incredible voice that we've just recently lost and um but that's the beauty of of music as long as cds or digital is out the beauty of poetry of writing any of that the the words outlive the creators and, and they can speak yeah. to a new generation in perhaps a different way and that is that is so true so if you are in this is I believe this firmly. This show is going to be outlast me. It will be somewhere in the world long after I'm gone. Your books are going to be here long after you're gone. Music musicians, mm -hmm. same thing. And that's how it's designed to be, I think. Because good ideas never die. Um and I agree. you know, and in mm -hmm. your work, um House of the Moon Surviving the Sixties is a work of art that is going to people that did not live there and were not part of the 60s would not believe it if you if you told them these things but you wrote it down so it will be there for them uh to get the actual flavor and feel for what it was like and it wasn't all good there was a lot of undercurrent of negativity hate division and fear in that in that time. well and that's why i say i i like to always give a warning on it's not a fun romp through the 60s it is a dark, disturbing book that explores the underbelly of this generation that actually changed the world. But yeah. in order to change the world, it can't all just be peace and love. It, there has to be um, an undying dedication to change, to face the, the, the repression to to face being able um to say i stand here even if you're going to arrest me even if you're going to hit me with a billy club even no matter what you're going to do to me i will stand here and i think my generation learned this from the civil rights movement mm -hmm. the people who did the sit-ins the people who did the marches all of that they were so courageous and I think my generation took from that and said, okay, now we need to do this to try to establish peace. And the one, the one song going back to music that was played worldwide in 1967, first time it had ever happened was, was called the, uh, um, all you need is love. And mm -hmm. that was in 1967. That was a new concept really. Mm -hmm. That all anybody needs. I mean, we talked about romantic love a lot and girl, buzz boy, and that kind of thing. But we didn't talk about 
all the world needs is love. And it's that, love. Yeah. And that that opened up a lot of young minds like mine that that said, well, you know, why do we have to hate each other? Why can't we be kind? And that has kind of led me through. And uh, mm-hmm. so I love I love that you've written that, and that is going to be a, a surviving memory of the '60s forever. But you're not done yet. You've got no. <laughs> and that's a wonderful segue into the last Magdalene because it's dealing with basically New Testament times and recasting the people involved as demythified human beings. What they went through, I mean, Judea at the time of the New Testament was under Roman occupation. There are so many corollaries to the 60s. And I would say that the man we've come to know is Jesus, who would have been Yeshua Bar Joseph, was, I forget who said this, but a rabble-rousing rabbi. I mean, he came out of Galilee and he was challenging the, the status quo. He was saying, no, this is not how you do it. You love your neighbor. You turn the other cheek. You include everybody. So his message was being um, being inclusive as opposed to exclusive. And at that time, Mary Magdalene, who it, Miriam, who the book is about, it's her story. It's a first person narrative. It was women had rights. They had the right to inherit. They had the right to choose their own husband. They had the right to not be married. They had the right to own their own property. And Rome came in as the ultimate patriarchy and said, what? Women shouldn't have these rights and started cracking down on it. And the high priesthood in Jerusalem and the name Caiaphas comes down to us in the Bible, but there were many other high priests, um, was the main collaborator with Rome. And so it all it, it all descended upon this particular time to eradicate women's rights, to eradicate the, the worship or the adoration of a, of a feminine divinity that cared for women and, and the structure of Hebraic law in Jerusalem and Judea and Galilee. So it was a pivotal time too. I often say that Galilee was the Berkeley of the sixties. Yeah, I I agree with that. Every rebellion against the Greeks, against Rome, it all started in Galilee. Well, yeah. And the interesting thing about that is the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and, and the, the religious people of power aligned themselves with the powerful Pontius Pilate, and others, Herod would be another one, that, that they lied themselves mm-hmm. with those folks because they wanted to maintain their power. Their power. And, they and Herod do. Antipas was always looking. He wanted to be the king. He wanted to take over what his father, Herod the Great, wanted. And uh, so he was always pandering to Rome. And, and that's, so he yeah. would do anything, kill anybody. Back then in the 60s, we would be arrested. A few of us were killed. But to Rome, you said Rome was wrong. You died. Yeah. End of story. And, and if they, you went against Rome, you were crucified, which was a hideous, hideous, torturous death. That it, it still, I had to write about it. So I, I learned too, way too much about crucifixion for to sleep well at night. <laughs> it, it, it was interesting. 
in in like the uh passion of the christ and others mm-hmm. um they they try and depict it as it as it kind of happened but it it was not as sanitized as oh, goodness, as, no. as we have seen it it was well crucifixion was to it was designed to be the most horrific way and they did that on purpose and they put you on a tree so that everybody could look at you and say so step out of line treason against the state and this is where how you're going to end up this is what happens unless you're a roman citizen yes so if you're not if you're a roman citizen then then you you got to be thrown off the tapian rock or something uh (laughs) something else uh a faster death but uh, that whole thing. So I, I'm seeing more and more after they've been written the correlation between these two times, these two people that the Magdalene stood up. I I cast her as an equal, in 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 knowledge, in love, in forgiveness, in acceptance, as as Jesus, and she was. She was a very powerful, determined woman who was caught up in a time that changed the Western world. It did. And, and the Romans were, you're right. They were very man oriented and mm-hmm. men could do whatever they wanted and women should be seen and not heard and shut up and sit down. And by the way, unless I want you to get up and then you're going to come over here and then, you know, whatever, but- whatever. Yeah. They were, uh, uh, women belonged to the father of the family he had life and death over them and then once they were married they belonged to their husband and anything could happen they couldn't inherit they couldn't own property in their own names uh it was an incredibly repressive time and and they were supposed to just be docile and breed children and judea was anything but that i mean people think that because of the new testament that people who at this time, they were Hebrews. They they weren't there weren't any Christians. Right. Spoiler alert. By <laughs> <laughs> uh, and by the way, I hate to bring this to you all, but Jesus was Jewish, and so was Mary Magdalene, and so was everybody else in that that whole tribe, and um, they they were fighting for their way of life. And women were judges. They were rulers. They they could sit in courts of law. They could worship in the temple. And all of this started changing around this period of time. Yeah. Uh, you know, in as Rome took over, and as you say, I mean, the priest um, and the different sects within the Hebraic um, hierarchy saw the best way to conform and to keep their power, and that was to go with Rome. And that's why and, I got, yeah, go ahead. No, no, and and that's that's what you were saying. I mean, okay, how do we keep our power? Well, they're more powerful than we are. They saw it early on and agreed to collaborate in order to keep their power where some people did not. And Which that's is, where I come up with Yeshua Bar Joseph. He he said no, but there are others. Barabbas, who gets a bad name in the Bible, is a brigand and a renegade. He was another freedom fighter. You know, one person's insurrectionist is another person's freedom fighter. 
I could say something about that is that brings it to modern times, but I'm not going to. Um, yeah, we're not going there. <laughs> this is not a political show. That's right. right? <laughs> but, but no, you, you are so right. And what they did then is the leadership of the church could then take people that were rabble rousers and those that were trying to initiate change and which is what an what an odd concept to love everybody equally and to, to and, and stuff how could you do that and so then they could they could hold him up and say this man is a blasphemer and he says this and he says that and pilot you heretic. need to he's a heretic and so you need to and he's a traitor to rome which was yes. the he because he wants to take he wants to take over the uh, uh, kingship of Rome and and the and the emperor. He wants to become emperor of Rome, and that's ultimately what what Pilate decided. That, but he still wanted to kill Barabbas first. Well, Barabbas actually, we have more historical evidence of Barabbas than we do of Yeshua Bar Joseph. Isn't that and uh, <laughs> so it's interesting. But they wanted to get rid of everyone, and that whole thing, by the way, that was not a custom. So we have so much coming down to us that is factually inaccurate. Which the part whole was concept, it? Oh, the part where they held up Jesus and Barabbas, that was not, that was not a custom. And no. they made it a custom to once again shift the blame from the Romans, where they were trying to establish this new religion, to the Hebrews, because then it's not my fault. You know, Pilate washed his hand. No Roman governor in the history of Rome would ever bow to the wishes of the populace. Pilate was a hideous human being. He was Roman through and through, and he cared nothing for them. There was a protest about an aqueduct that he actually took money from the temple to build. And when people complained about it, he had his men hide in the audience and listen to all of these uh, people complaining that he took the funds and everything. And he held his hand up like he was going to speak. And that was a sign. His soldiers were in the club, in, in the crowd with clubs, and they took them out from under their cloaks and beat people to death. That's how Rome dealt. They didn't wash their hands of anything. This is, again, fictions created by the early church to shift blame from Rome to the Hebrews. And it doesn't make any sense if you look at historical accuracy. Well, yeah. <laughs> and, and I know that you've looked at, you've looked at these things and, and especially like, I believe, isn't there a, a book that was written by the Magdalene? Um, there, there are the Nagamati texts, which were written in Coptic, which was an early um, language form, and they've been ascribed to her, also to Philip, to John. There's a book of Judas that has come out, yes. and these were found in a cave that in in Egypt, and the papyrus has been dated back to first century, but it was an oral tradition that was later written down. And I believe the teachings that are ascribed to her, they fall right in line with the teachings ascribed to Yeshua Bar Joseph. They are about inclusion, about love, of acceptance. Love your neighbor. You know, do unto others as you would want to have done unto you. And that doesn't mean go out and, 
and murder people because they don't believe exactly like you believe. And her teachings, the, the third book in the series, A Woman Unto Herself, goes into her teachings because when she finally leaves Judea, goes to Egypt, leaves Egypt and goes to Southern Gaul, she becomes a renowned teacher and healer in her own right. And um, as I say, her teachings are every bit as much about love and acceptance and peace and generosity of spirit and generosity of, you know, if you have two coins in your park pocket, you give one to somebody else. Yeah, to help exactly. Them. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, if you've got two coins in your pocket, then you can, you can go give some money to a charity. And that would be good for instead of having billions and billions of dollars that hello in <laughs> instead of shooting yourself into space, yeah, go help okay. people who don't have food on the table. I, I yes, and I know you've done a lot of research. I wanted to ask you because I mm -hmm. find it fascinating that uh, the 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 church or the Christian church kind of developed into two different. There was the Western philosophy and the Eastern philosophy, and they were actually very 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 much different. But the Western philosophy was ultimately ruled by the Emperor of Rome and Constantine uh, when he when he kind of put that all together. And then the Eastern philosophy, which I think was a lot more um, spiritually minded and and may have included reincarnation and may have included some of these things, they were ruled as heretics, and then they were dispatched with. Well, and throughout history, I mean, you go up into the 12th century and the Qatars, which were the Bonami uh, in southern, what is now southern France, they said that you love one another, you do no harm, you don't need a priest in order to relate to divinity, and they they were wiped out. I mean, the Albigensian crusade that happened in the 1200s <clears throat> killed half the population of the South. Yeah. And because... it's because if, if you think about it, Constantine, let's go back to Constantine. He has this vision, which is questionable if it even was, a, you know, the vision, it looked more like a sign of Mars, the, the God of war. But all of a sudden he can find a religion when he's fighting two emperors, the, the, it was splitting apart two emperors. So you have one religion, with one God, not a merit of gods, but one God that passes on the divine right to rule to one emperor. To me, it was rather convenient. <laughs> Just saying. It, no, and, and it really was the Nicene Creed and and the and the Council of Nicaea. They they put it together in such a way they they picked the actual books of the Bible. So when I when I grew up, I was told that the, every word was the inspired word of God, but yes. it was picked by a bunch of guys, and there were other who books were locked on there. an island and told to get it together, or they'd never leave alive. <laughs> <laughs> you know, talk we, about incentive. Back to Rome. <laughs> We're talking with Donna Conrad. Go to her website, which is donnaconrad.conrad.com. Look at all of her stuff. I, I could talk to you for hours. In fact, I'm going to talk to you Friday at noon. Um, we are going to talk again. That's right. And we're going to have a great conversation. And it, right. it will be a lot of fun. And I want to thank you for being here. Um, uh, and it has been my pleasure. 
Thank you so much. And just to let people know, April 9th, The Last Magdalene's coming out, and we're going to have, uh, if you go to my website and sign up, there is a chance for three people to win a signed hardback copy of the book and mm -hmm. uh, lots of other good things. You can also, if you're interested in the House of the Moon, if you sign up, you get a secret link to the lost chapters, those that didn't make it in the book. Oh, good for Lots you. of other goodies. And uh, so please sign up. I'd be glad to hear from you. I'm always open to hear from writers and readers. Let's talk. Absolutely. Good for you. Go to Con uh, DonnaConrad.com and go treasure hunting. That'll be that'll be great fun. So thank you so much for being here, my dear. And we'll, I'll talk to you again on Friday. I got to go my do pleasure. another show. And so, but thank get, you so get much. Get to it. I'm telling you. <laughs> it's been a right pleasure. There. Wait right there. I'll be right back. Thanks for enjoying this episode all the way to the end. This has been a production of KMmedia.pro. Please visit our website, oddly enough, named KMmedia.pro for more details about us and our mission, which is to provide great positive programming designed to inspire us all. I'm Kevin McDonald, and I'm proud of these shows, and I truly hope that you'll like them and share them with friends and family. So on behalf of our entire team, remember, be kind to each other because each other's all we've got. We'll see you next time. That was fun. Thank you. I'm so glad you don't do anything political.